We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hi, I'm Ray Didinger. And I'm Glenn Macnow, and this episode is sponsored by Meridian Bank, one of the area's best business banks. Learn why at meridianbanker.com slash WIP. Well, when the pandemic hit and sports shut down in March 2020, Ray and I knew we would need alternative ways to entertain our audience. With no games to discuss, we started calling on some of our friends, Merrill Reese, Dick Vermeil, Larry Anderson, guys we knew had fascinating stories of how life's path got them where they are today. We conducted hour-long interviews, far longer than we normally allow on radio, and we gave the feature a very obvious name, Tell Us Your Story. We figured then that we would keep the feature going only until sports returned. Well, it's now nearly two years later, and while the games are back, we learned from our listeners that you want us to continue with Tell Us Your Story. We have now conducted a hundred of these conversations, Hall of Famers, local favorites, ballplayers, broadcasters, all with fascinating stories to tell. This is the third installment, and we call it Nice to Meet You, famous athletes meeting other famous people. Their stories are funny, surprising, and very human. We start with former flyer Jeremy Roenick talking about being a young hockey player and seeing Mr. Hockey, Gordie Howe. I've always loved the interaction with the fans. I've, um, I love the acknowledgement of the fans, whether I was, you know, throwing pucks to the kids. In 1988, when I came up to the Chicago Blackhawks, I'd stay after warm-ups and throw pucks to the kids. And nobody ever did that. Nobody would throw pucks. They would just go down to the locker room. I took pucks, and I was just happy that I was there in the National Hockey League, showing my appreciation to the fans, giving the kids something you know that they could remember, a little trinket from the game. And I actually got in trouble. The team asked me not to do it. I was hurting their, you know, their 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 puck finances. They had to pay for more pucks and all that <laughs> stuff. Their bills were too high. But I kept doing it, and and I kept doing it for a reason. I I always thought that acknowledgement and making sure that I appreciated the fans being there. I mean, I, I remember sticking my hand through the camera hole in the glass during, during commercial breaks and grabbing popcorn out of a kid's, uh, you know, popcorn bag and kind of surprising them, taking the hats off kids and putting them on my head on the ice and just having that fun interaction because I, I knew it can really make uh, a difference and could really put a positive spin on, on, on a young kid's life or anybody's life, to tell you the truth. And it stemmed from when I was seven. I lived in Hartford, like I told you earlier. And uh, I was playing on my might team, and we were playing. It was a Saturday morning. We just finished our game, and the Hartford Whalers were coming on, on our practice facility ice to have their pregame skate. They were playing that night, and that was the same time that Gordie Howe was playing with his two sons, Marty and Mark. So we all got went, went in the locker room. We took all of our stuff off real quick, and we ran back to the rink. And, you know, just like a lot of young kids, we're hanging over the glass, watching all these, these professionals skating by in awe at how hard they were shooting the puck and, you know, visualizing, you know, what it's like to be a professional hockey player, these people we watch on television. And there's 40 or 50 kids that are lined up on the glass, you know, watching the pros. Well, about 30 minutes into the practice, um, Gordie Howe skated by, picked up a whole bunch of snow on a stick and dumped it all over my head and went all over <laughs> my head. And, and I was like, so I was like, oh, my God, you know, Gordie Howe just dumped snow on my head. And he skated back around. And as he came back around me, as I'm wiping the snow off my head, I'm looking at him with a big smile. And he gave me the biggest wink, like, uh, you know, you know, thanks for coming, kid. And I thought that was the coolest thing in the world, because for that 30 seconds, you know, he didn't dump snow on anybody else's head. He didn't wink at anybody else. It was me. So it was me and Gordie Howe. And, 
those are the only people that were on the planet that are in the world right now. And that's kind of how I felt. And I thought it was the coolest thing in the world <clears throat> that Mr. Hockey acknowledged me and dumped snow on my head. And I told my teachers, I told my family, I told my friends. And here I am at 50 years old. I'm telling you guys the same story. Well, a few years back, Ray and I wrote a book together, The Ultimate Book of Sports Movies. One of our favorites was Slapshot, the great comedy about minor league hockey. The guys who steal that film are the Hanson brothers, of course, and we interviewed one of them, Dave Hanson. He described for us what a thrill it was hanging around with Oscar-winning actor Paul Newman, although the initial meeting didn't get off to a great start. Well, as I, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we were, they were in town, and uh, we were in the playoffs. Um, I think we were playing, in fact, you know, ironically, Ray and Glenn, I, I think we were playing the Philadelphia Firebirds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, um, so we were having, we had a game that night. So I'm, I'm having a pregame nap. My other two roommates, I think one, if I recall, one was Bruce Boudreau and the other was Henry Taylor. Both were in the film, mm-hmm. uh, and who slept like, you know, like rocks. And, uh, the, you know, there's knocking going on a door, which is close to my bedroom door. And so, you know, I get up, I'm kind of ticked off wondering what, you know, who the heck's, you know, knocking on my door and uh, so I, I walk over I you know I'm in my my underwear and my dirty socks and I open a door you know a little bit of a skull on my face and I'm looking down and and thinking to myself geez that guy looks like Paul Newman <laughs> and uh and he was on a stoop he, the steps walked up to my landing so he, he He's short, and I'm, after, as soon as I thought that, wow, that looks like Paul Newman, I, the next second thing I saw is, boy, he sure is short. And uh, he looks up and he says, oh, geez, are you Dave? And I says, yeah. And he says, well, I'm Paul Newman. And he sticks his hand out, and I says, oh, yeah, okay, I guess you are, Paul. <laughs> and he says, well, geez, I'm sorry, did I interrupt something? I says, yeah, I interrupted my pregame nap. And he says, oh, man, you know, it's very apologetic, very nice. And there's a couple guys, you know, standing behind him. He says, look, he says, I really apologize. He says, but, you know, I got these guys from the art department. They want to uh, see what a hockey player's um, apartment looks like. He says, you know, would it be too much of a bother if we came in and kind of quietly looked around and, and these guys, you know, took their pictures and their notes and did whatever they did. And I said, listen, I got no problem with that, Paul, but I'm going back to bed. I said, yes, please, you know, on your way out, make sure you close the door and, and uh, and that was that. And he says, yeah, okay, great. And I start, you know, I remember I w- I'm walking back to the bedroom. He says, hey, Dave. I said, yeah. He says, uh, do you mind if I turn the TV on while these guys are doing their thing? He says, you know, I'd like to watch the race. So he says, no, no, you know, no problem. Go ahead. Hey, Dave. Yeah, yeah, geez, yeah. You got any beer in the fridge? Yeah. <laughs> Grab what you want. You know, go ahead. You know, take everything you want. So, yeah, so that literally was my first introduction and in meeting with Paul Newman. Joey Crawford is a Delco guy and a longtime NBA ref, a colorful character who is known to fans in every arena. He got used to it after a while, but one night at the Forum in Los Angeles, he caught the eye of a Laker fan named Jack Nicholson. Joey doesn't mind telling us that that was a thrill. You know, you get into the league and, 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 you know, I watched this guy. One of my favorite movies of all time was Easy Rider. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I watched it, and Jack's in it, and I don't, I'm i not that guy that's looking to say hello or go over to hug Jack Nicholson. I know my place. I'm in the league a couple of years, and I don't know that he knows me. I have no idea. So right where we took our warm-up jacket off, Jack sat there. Jack used to sit there with a guy by the name of Lou Adler, who's a music producer, another wonderful man. So I never said anything to him, but Joe Gashu would talk to him. Earl Strom would talk to him. Hubert Evans would talk to him, but I didn't, I didn't talk to him. So it's like my third year. I pulled the jacket off. I put the jacket down, and I catch Jack's eye, and I just go, how you doing, Jack? And he looks at me, and he goes, how you doing, Joe? And I don't say anything, but inside I'm going like this. Jack Nicholson knows me. It's unbelievable. <laughs> you know, yep. I can't wait to get back. To, I can't wait to get back to the hotel. And now that is, it's like it's three hour difference. You know what I mean? So I call yeah. my wife. I said, Jack Nicholson knows me. She goes, do you know what time it is? <laughs> I said, I don't care, Mary. Jack Nicholson knows me. 
But it, it, it was it was awesome. It was awesome. I, I, I it might be my favorite moment as a ref. Willie O'Ree may not be a household name, but he's an important historical figure, the first black man to play in the NHL. O'Ree has been described as the Jackie Robinson of hockey, and for him, there was no greater thrill than meeting the actual Jackie Robinson when O'Ree was a young baseball player. He described it for us when he joined us for Tell Us Your Story. Well, we I was playing baseball in my in my hometown and uh, played shortstop and second base, and uh, a lot of people thought that I was a better ball player than a, a hockey player. But my my um, my life was uh, to play hockey, and I played baseball in the summertime, you know, to keep my legs in shape. But but anyway, we won the um, we won the league that that year, and our reward was that our team was going to be taken to New York to see the Empire State Building in Radio Music City Hall and Coney Island, the Statue of Liberty, you know, nice. see all the attractions. And we went and um, went to the uh, the ball game, saw Mr. Robinson play um, with the with the Dodgers at uh, Ebbets Field. Um, after the game, uh, I was taken down and uh, introduced to Mr. Robinson uh, at the dugout, and I shook hands with him. And Mr. Robinson, I told him I not only played uh, uh, baseball, but I also played hockey. And he said, well, I didn't realize that there were any black kids playing hockey. And I said, yeah, Mr. Robinson, there's a few. So uh, another three or four minutes we talked, and uh, he says, well, he says, congratulations. And he says, uh, you know, he says, whatever you do, Work hard, he said. There's, there's no substitute for hard work. Wow. You know, so we left. And, um, you know, I never thought. I said, uh, everybody thought, oh, God, you met Jackie Robinson and you shook hands with him and so on. So so anyway, in 1961, I was traded to the um, the Los Angeles uh, Blades, the professional team playing in Los Angeles. And um, I was playing there. And in 1962, the NAACP had a luncheon for Mr. Robinson at one of the uh, – local hotels up in North Hollywood. And uh, I received an invitation through the hockey club. So we, uh, we go to the, the coach and myself and two other players went to the, uh, the hotel and Mr. Robinson was standing talking to some media people. So we stood offside waiting for him to finish. And when we did, we went over and uh, the coach said, Mr. Robinson, I'd like to introduce you to three of the local players here, especially Willie O'Ree, uh, newly acquired from the Hall of Canadians. And Mr. Robinson turned at me and looked me in the eye, and he, he said, Willie O'Ree, he says, aren't you the young fellow I met in Brooklyn? Now, he remembered me from 1949 to 1962, and I mean, that just made a big impact with me. And sure. um, I think it made a, an impact with him because when I told him not only played baseball, but I played hockey, then he believed he said, well, my goodness, he, he's, he's playing hockey. He's, he's, you know, he's playing the goal that he set for himself. But it was it was a treat in itself, and uh, I've got a uh, picture Jack Bob. I'm looking at it now in my in my uh, in my office, and uh, oh, what a what a great honor, and, and what a what a th- what a thrilling moment it was for me. Upper Dublin Susie Culber has been an NFL sideline reporter for many years. She's worked dozens of playoff games and Super Bowls, but she's best remembered for the night that she interviewed or tried to interview Jets Hall of Famer Joe Namath. Broadway Joe was smitten and also intoxicated. Well, it wasn't. The funny part is it wasn't tough in the moment because to me it was so not a big deal. It turned into a big thing, but it was seriously in the moment. It was so like kind of a, I rolled my eyes. I moved on. Like after it was over, I would not have given it a second thought. I did not think it was such a big deal. Even like in a sense, and obviously Obviously, he had had too much to drink, but kind of like a Joe being Joe, you know. And I thought, oh well, you know. I, I, my thought, I guess my my thoughts as it was happening was, I didn't want him to be embarrassed, and even the producer was in my ear at the time, who said, keep going, you know, like after the first question, because. None of us realized that he was drunk. Like, I remember processing, is he, is he really cold? Uh, he's talking slower. Did, did, right. Um, right. Did, is, is he sick and we don't know it? You know, like that, like it was that kind of thing because I didn't get a chance to pre-interview him or even talk to him for a minute because when, when they're coming to me, it happens so fast that we were just, I actually had my arm around him because he kept walking away. 
So I never had a chance to actually like stand there and talk to him. And I'm in the I'm I'm paying attention to the game at the time. So as they threw it to me, now suddenly it's like, all right, go. So anyway, I'm kind of processing. He's answering sort of slow, and then the producer, who is a huge, huge fan of his, says, "Keep going." And then I ask the second question, which you know has become so famous. But I, I think you the, know, I think it. Yeah, I. Yeah, I, go I, ahead. No, I, I think well, Glenn, you know, Glenn said it well when he said that you handled it as gracefully as possibly could. Um, but I think the the real bottom line on the story is that um, that Joe was so mortified by what happened um that he vowed um that that was it i mean he was going to he was going to go and he's going to get treatment and he was going to well, stop drinking silver lining. and that's and that's that the silver, silver lining of the story of right the silver lining of the story i guess in, in two parts one was uh i certainly wasn't looking for any publicity from that whole episode so i never talked about it for years I never talked about it until I believe it was HBO did a documentary on Joe. And even at that time, I asked them, I asked the producers to ask him if he was okay with me talking about it. I had never talked about it over that weekend. We had a game that night in New York and then we had a double header. We had, we had two games that weekend. We went from there to Indy and that's all everybody was talking about. And I remember saying to our executives at ESPN, I'm not giving an interview. I'm not talking to anybody. You get you every late night show, every newspaper, everybody wanted, wanted to talk to me about it. I never did an interview. I just wanted the whole thing to settle down and go away. Of course, Joe called me, you know, on Monday morning, probably it was. And, and the first four seconds of the conversation was on the record where he said he was sorry. I said, I accept. And then we chatted for a while and he felt so bad and I said to him, there's a silver lining in everything, which at the moment he couldn't see, but that was it. That that was his rock bottom. Everybody saw he needed help, and he got help, and then his life turned around. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I've never, ever looked at that, at that, any of it, as a negative because in the moment – it just wasn't a big deal. I didn't feel like I was being disrespected or anything. It was just something that happened. It was a really good guy having a bad moment, having to be caught on national television. So the moment to me wasn't bad. And then anything that happened after that for him then was all good. Jim Gardner has been a legendary newsman here in Philadelphia for decades. When Gardner announced late last year that he'd be retiring at the end of 2022, he was gracious enough to give Ray and me his first broadcast interview. Jim knows how to talk to anyone. He's interviewed presidents and popes, famous newsmakers of all sorts. In this cut from our Tell Us Your Story with Jim, he describes how he connected with George W. Bush when the soon-to-be president came to town campaigning and the two men had time to kill together. George W. was campaigning for his first term in 2000 and he came to media for a big rally they put grandstands up in front of the courthouse and it was a big rally uh it's about 105 degrees just brutal in the sun and <clears throat> he was going to talk to all the television stations for five ten minutes apiece, and it was up to us to set up the camera and all that and then all the television stations would use that same setup so I got there early with our crew, and we're setting up, um, waiting for Governor Bush, Mr. Bush, to come in and uh, begin this process. So he comes in 15 minutes early, and he is soaked. His suit is <laughs> ruined. His shirt is soaked to his chest, and he is not a happy camper. He is very cranky. And it's now my task. <laughs> to sit and make small talk with this guy for 15 minutes until yeah. we're ready to set up. And I'm asking him how he likes the campaign trail, even though we know that he is not particularly enamored with campaigning as a, as a candidate, never has been. So I'm struggling. Finally, I think I got it. And I say, so you're the guy who traded Sammy Sosa. Managing Texas partner Rangers. of the Texas Rangers and traded Sosa to uh, 
the White Sox, actually, for Harold Baines. And all of a sudden, his eyes light up. And we spend the next 15 minutes as two guys talking baseball. And by the way, he is really knowledgeable. I asked him if he could name the uh, starting eight position players for the 1956 New York Yankees, and he nailed it. He just nailed it. And, uh, you know, it shows what sports can do. You know, it's... uh, it is a language. It is a means of communication. And because of that, we had a really good interview with him. Too. That's great. So it was great. That's a great story. And we've got a whole lot more coming, including the odd couple of Pat Croce and Larry Brown and an unforgettable story about a brawl in the shower room after an Eagles practice. With Ray Dinger, I'm Glenn Mack. Now, this is the best of Tell Us Your Story, sponsored by Meridian Bank, one of the area's best business banks. Learn why at meridianbanker.com WIP. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I'm Ray Dittinger with Glenn Macnow, and you're listening to the best of Tell Us Your Story. Sponsored by Meridian Bank, one of the area's best business banks. Learn why at meridianbanker.com slash WIP. Well, you heard Al Michaels' famous call of an earthquake rocking the Bay Area at Game 1 of the Giants-A's World Series. When Al joined us for Tell Us Your Story, he took us back to that very scary moment when real life upstaged baseball. Well, number one, uh, you're working in an intense state of concentration. We're on camera. We're opening up the World Series. So, you know, you're, you just want to make sure you get off to a clean start. You're a horse coming out of the starting gate. You don't want to stumble. And I'm going back and forth. You know, we, we, we had rehearsed it. I'm going to go to Tim. Tim's going to narrate some video from the game on Sunday night, the game two, then I'm going to go to Jim. So, we're, you know, you're thinking about a lot of things. And then all of a sudden, as somebody who has lived a good part of my life in California, when it begins to shake, just for one brief moment, I thought it was maybe a bunch of kids banging bats uh, above us. We're in the mezzanine level. The upper deck is right above us. And it felt as if uh, they were banging bats on the ground, on the on the floor of the upper deck, and then all of a sudden we began began to move. So I knew exactly what it was, and it's one of those whoa moments where, when you live through an earthquake, you know what it is, but then the the scarier part is: is it going to get worse? Is it going to get more violent? Is it going to calm down? How long is it going to go? And I was you know in bed in Los Angeles in the the one in '94, and that baby went for over a minute and that one had diagonals in it i mean you were going up and down and sideways and that was beyond frightening san francisco i remember it, it only lasted 15 seconds even though it seemed a lot longer because you can't wait for that baby to stop but i remember going uh horizontally we're going back and forth and back not going up and down up and down is where when it really gets scary uh, and it stopped and then you know, you knew it was an earthquake, but then you don't know. Are we sitting on top of a 2.4 earthquake? Was it right underneath us? Was it a gigantic earthquake someplace else? And we, we, we're, we're getting, you know, uh, the feeling from 150 miles away. As it turned out, that earthquake was about 80 or 90 miles away. So it was a big one. Uh, we, we obviously felt it. You're in the stadium at that time. And, of course, in those years, there's no Twitter feed. Uh, cable television is still relatively in its infancy. There's no way to get immediate information in an enclosed stadium. And people, you know, you heard the oohs and the ahs and the, and the rest of it and the players and 
a lot of other folks come out onto the field, and the wives join the husbands there, and they're kind of looking around, seeing what's going on. And, of course, you know, you're also waiting for an aftershock, but uh, because nobody really knew the extent of it. Uh, the game was supposed to start at about 5.28, 5.29, somewhere in that area. And I would say at about 5.22, the crowd starts to chant, play ball, play ball. They had no idea what had really taken place outside. That took a while for that information to get inside the stadium. So nobody really knew the extent of it. Now, of course, with Twitter and everything else out there, uh, you'd know it within 10 seconds exactly what took place. Yeah. But not then. That was uh, unbelievably unusual. Uh, and, of course, they, I think they made the right decision. Faye Vincent was the commissioner at the time and decided to delay the World Series, not not to cancel it, delay it, uh, postpone it. And he did it for 10 days. And, and back we came a week from the following Friday, and uh, the A's completed the sweep at that point. Adam Taliaferro was a freshman player. No, 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 no. Three, two, one. Adam Taliaferro was a young player for Penn State with a bright future in football. In September 2000, as a freshman, he was injured on a play that changed his life forever. In this moment from our interview, he describes the play. Yeah, so, you know, I was, I was playing defensive back. Uh, I was, you know, throughout the, the entire season, Coach Bradley, Coach Bradley had me playing at, at the right corner spot. Uh, but, you know, when he, when he put me out there, he said, Adam, you know, why don't you go out there and play left corner, you know, get some experience. So I was playing, you know, like like any other game I played, you know, throughout my entire life. And I remember the, the play that, that basically changed my life. Uh, it was a pitch. They, Ohio State pitched the ball out to the running back. And he was running, you know, running the sweep. And, you know, the running back was about 220. And when I was a, as a freshman at Penn State, I was about 180, 185 pounds. So I knew I couldn't hit him up high. So as he was running towards me, I, I said, you know, I'm just going to go take his legs out, hit him low, like, I, you know, like I've done, you know, so many times in the past. I went in to make the tackle, and, you know, if you, if you see the video, unfortunately I, I, I had my head ducked down, and, you know, he ran right into me. And I remember the impact, and I remember hitting the ground, and I, I felt like I blacked out a little bit, and I, I kind of came to, and I tried to get, get up, and it just felt like nothing nothing was there. And I, I, I thought immediately I thought I broke my arm because I couldn't feel my arm, both arms. I couldn't feel anything. And then I tried to gather my legs, and that's when I started to panic because I couldn't I couldn't move my legs. And uh, my my teammate, uh, you know, the other corner, Bao Ju, you know, I remember him coming over to me saying, All right, you know, Adam, get up. And I couldn't get up. And I saw him panic, and he called out uh, our team doctor, Dr. Sebastian Nell, you know, our team trainer, George Salvatore. And I, uh, the thing that will always stick with me, I, I remember looking up and seeing Coach Paterno and – just the, the concern in his eyes, because, you know, Coach had been coaching for many years, and to see just the, the fear in his eyes, that's when I knew something was, was really wrong. And they, they asked me, you know, Adam, do you know where you're at? And I said, yeah, you know, I knew I was in Columbus. I knew what the date was. And um, they said, can you move anything? And I, I couldn't move. It, it just feels like uh, when people ask me what it feels like, I just said it, it felt like my entire body, like there's just a tingling sensation from my neck down, it just felt like my head was. I couldn't feel or move anything below my neck. And they, you know, thankfully, thank God, I had great care on the field. You know, because when you go through these kind of injuries, if you move any type of way, you can do uh, significantly more damage. So they got me secured. They, they took me off the field, and I was, you know, I always say it was it stinks getting injured, but I got injured in the best place you can get injured with that being in Columbus, Ohio, because they have a nationally recognized spinal cord center right on campus. Before I got injured at Penn State, they would have had to airlift me to Hershey Medical Center, and those would have been precious precious minutes that would have wasted away. So although it was it was bad, I was fortunate to, to have the injury occur where it occurred. I remember seeing an interview uh, where you were talking about this, and you said that when they put you on the stretcher, uh, and began wheeling you off the field. That you're at, at that point, you're fully aware that this is on television, and that your parents are mm -hmm. watching at home. Uh, and you said that you had seen other players in a similar situation on television, and they would give a thumbs up sign, like "I'm okay," yep. to, to send a message back home. But you said you said you you wanted to do that, and you tried, but you couldn't. You couldn't. You couldn't even move your arm that much. Uh, uh, yep, that that's that's exactly right. And and I, I remember even when I was laying on the ground before they got me on the, the stretcher, I was like, you know, just move something because I knew, you know, my mom more than anybody was watching. So I just wanted to, 
you know, move a little bit to let her know I was okay and, you know, couldn't move. And then they get me on the stretcher, and I said, okay, you know, is there, is there wheeling me off? I just want to either raise a hand to, to wave, let everybody know I'm okay, or even simply just give the thumbs up. And I remember trying with my right side, my right hand, and it didn't happen. And I tried with the left, and, and nothing happened. And that's when I just uh, really started to panic because I, uh, that's when I knew something was, was truly wrong. And I knew, you know, my mom was probably panicking at home, and I just knew all types of – chaos was going on and it's just it for me it broke my heart because i knew you know it was it was just really devastating her to see to see me in that condition michael buffer is known far and wide as a ring announcer and his trademark call and he has literally trademarked it has introduced every champion for years when michael joined us for tell us your story we asked how it all started so when we came to the main event and you're in atlantic city or las vegas or madison square garden it's exciting because they play the music and the fighter comes to the ring and there's a spotlight on them. And the crowd gets amped up and then the ring announcers were killing the crowd by introducing, I'm sure you remember this, uh, Boxing Commissioner, the Honorable Jersey Joe Walcott. You know, that, I mean, a big introduction for the entire staff of yeah. the New yeah, Jersey State Athletic Control Board or the, all the commissioners and members of the commission in Nevada. And so by the time you introduce the three judges and four doctors and the entire staff of these commissions, if it was a unification fight, you had the WBA and WBC presidents and their supervisors. And there, was, there were times where I would introduce practically 20 names, and you've killed the crowd. If there was any excitement or energy or electricity in that audience, you just sucked it right out of the room. So I wanted a moment like we have at Indi the Indy 500 when this little old lady that belongs to the family that owns the, the, uh, the racetrack says, gentlemen, start your engines, but everybody yeah. goes crazy because it means one thing. Now you're going to see the race is going to start. So I wanted the fans to know you're going to meet the stars of the show. And this is something that would, you know, light a little fire there. And I tried uh, man your battle stations and, you know, ladies and gentlemen, fasten your seatbelts. You know, nothing was happening. And, of course, the great Ali used to have these at the weigh-in and at a press conference. He would uh, recite poetry and, uh, I'm so pretty, rum float like a butterfly and all that. And he would say, rumble, young man, rumble. I'm ready to rumble. And so the phrase was there, and uh, Sal Marciano used to be the blow-by-blow uh, -blow announcer on ESPN. And, uh, you know, when I was working with him and Al Bernstein, and, uh, he used to say, we're ready to rumble at Resorts International. And so I started to say, let's get ready to rumble. It wasn't anything like you hear today, and I didn't, I didn't have any pause after it for any effect. And uh, that's kind of like where it started. The first time was at Resorts International in Atlantic City. Michael Buffer, speaking of Rumble, well, that reminds us of one of our favorite recent interviews, which was with Mike Golick, a member of Buddy Ryan's Gangrene Defense, an entertaining guy who built himself a great post-football career as a broadcaster. Golick took us behind the scenes into the Eagles' locker room, actually the shower room, where an on-field scuffle between teammates almost escalated into a full-scale brawl. If he And you never had to worry about their if there was going to be a fight. It was how many fights are there going to be? I mean, that, that was never, never a question. So that day that you're talking about, we're doing one-on-one -on -one, um, uh, run and pass block with the O-line. And, uh, and, and you're right. You picked the two people perfectly, Ron Heller and, and Jerome. My God. I mean, just – they just don't stop on each other. And, you know, <laughs> and, and Jerome doesn't really go against Ron. Ron's out of tackle and Jerome's playing on the inside, but that doesn't stop those two from, from at each other and so it's just obviously progressive there was literally a fight after every single one-on-one -on -one rep by all of us i mean late pushing late grabbing late punching you know everybody jumping in on everybody i mean it was it, it got to the point in all honesty where we were getting nothing accomplished nothing but you know what the hell we were fighting you know we didn't we didn't give a damn so so after that, of course, to end practice, it's a two-minute drill. So we're, for now, we're even more tired and more aggravated. So there's more fighting going on. But, you know, uh, at this point, you know, the offense is trying to raise their plays. They're still pushing and shoving after the plays. 
but we finished practice and we are just dog ass tired. <clears throat> and uh, everybody goes in and we kind of stayed out. I think Dale, our D line coach, Dale Hop, had us doing some stuff after. <clears throat> so we're coming into the locker room afterward, and at Westchester, where you came in, you walked by the showers before you got to the lockers. So we were coming in still in our in our full uniforms, you know, the whole thing. I mean, just dirty, sweaty, still pissed off about everything. And as we're walking in, Jerome was kind of in the front. We're kind of in a group. We're walking. And, and right as we're walking past the showers, there's kind of two entrances and exits in the showers. Out comes Ron Heller. You know, I mean, he's walking out of the shower, so he's obviously naked, and we're in full gear. And so, you know, we all kind of stop because he's right in front of us. And Jerome and, 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 and uh, Ron look at one another, and Ron says, hey, you know, hot day, tough practice, you know, hey, it's over, you know, it's on the field. And Jerome gave him some just smart-ass answer that anybody who knows Jerome knows Jerome was going to do. And so Heller says, fine, cool, you want to go now? We'll go now. And he drops his towel. And Ron gets into a boxing stance, buck naked, right? <laughs> and so as this is happening, now as, you know, these guys are jawing for a minute, the rest of the people are coming out of the shower. And like, and some, some of them are old linemen. And they're all naked. And we're all sitting there in our, in our you know, uniforms. And they're jawing. All of a sudden, like I said, Heller gets into this boxing stance, buck naked. And we're like, are we going to do a West Side story here? You know, I mean, are, are, are we fighting, you know, O-line, D-line, you know, and one in pads, one in not? And finally, you know, Jerome in that, in that just that monster laugh he had just starts laughing. And, like, just, just the sight of Heller. Heller would have fought. Ron was ready to fight, <laughs> buck naked. He did not care. And we all just started laughing, and that was the end of oh, it. Oh, that's great. When Pat Croce agreed to join us on Tell Us Your Story, we knew it would be a fun interview, and it was. And the best part was every time he talked about keeping the peace between his head coach, Larry Brown, and his star player, Allen Iverson. You know, the scary part talking to you two is that you have great memories. I should tell you the past is an illusion, so none of this really matters. None of it happened. We'll, we'll, we'll save that for the end of this interview. <laughs> but, <laughs> you're right. This was probably, if I was sweating in front of the te- season ticket holder meeting, this was a sweat. I get a phone call that night after the game, and Larry Brown tells me he's trading Iverson in the morning. I get a phone call from Bubba, Alan Iverson, telling me, fire the coach or I quit. I'm not playing <laughs> from both that. night, I said, well, and to both of them, I said, let's meet in the morning. Let's meet. And this was that PCOM at the practice facility in the conference room. They come in. Everyone is out. You could see them through the glass. They're not practicing. Billy King's at the end of the table inside this conference room. I'm sitting there. Larry Brown's on the other side. Alan finally comes in and sits next to me and leans back with his arms across his chest and the perfect body language that says, leave me alone. Mm-hmm. And so I started up. I said, first, we all have a common goal to win a championship for this town. I said, Larry, you are not trading Alan Iverson. Bubba, I'm not firing the coach. That's it. You've never heard me say anything definitive against either one of you, but that is it. Now look at each other. Look in the mirror. You may be a different color, a different size, a different generation, but you're the exact same. You have the same exact will, goals, work ethic. I said, this is the two of us. And I said this. I said, i got to watch what I say here, but yeah. I don't want to use the exact words. But I <laughs> yeah, said, <please. laughs> Al, Alan, I said, Alan, the coach doesn't respect when you're coming off the court and you MF him when he's making insertions, substitutions. I said, that's not how you treat your coach. And then I looked at Larry. I said, Larry, Alan thinks that you're the jail warden who says, sit over there, and the N-word, mm-hmm. and be quiet. And they both looked at each other. like It was like a, in Zen they called it Saturi. It's like a moment of no mind and an aha, like, whoa. And then I said, 
don't you understand you both really love each other, but you show it in different ways. And as I'm saying this, Ray and Glenn, Alan's leaning on the table with his arms crossed now on the table, almost like getting into it. At the end, he get, I said, he said, I asked him to say something. I asked Larry Brown to say something. And it was so good. So poetic. Larry, Alan gets up and walks all the way over and hugs him and hugs. They stood and hugged. I don't know if there was tears or not, but it was the most precious moment of my NBA career. And then they went out and practiced, and that was the beginning. I think wow. it was year four, the year four that changed. I should tell you, though, I get home, and I'm so happy. I'm so relieved. And I get a phone call, and it's Larry Brown, and I think he's going to thank me. He was so mad at me. He was so angry that I usurped his power and allowed him to be at the plane, level plane with Alan that I, I was just shocked. I, I mean, I, I didn't know what to say. And that was like, whoa. But you know what? It didn't matter. For the next two years, we were on a winning streak. What great personalities that Sixers franchise had back then. Croce and Iverson and Larry Brown, and you just heard Pat describing the unique relationship among the three men. Well, what better way to close this episode than with Larry Brown himself describing the day in which Iverson held that infamous news conference to talk about practice. The practice one, we lost a tough game and in the playoffs, and our season was over, and usually the next day you have an exit meeting. You talk to the players, talk about what went right, what you needed to do better, what I could have done better, things like that. And then um, they generally meet with the press. Uh, well, he didn't show up to the exit meeting, and it really upset me. So I called him. And I said, Alan, you know, one, you disrespected everybody in our building, plus you disrespected the press for not being in there. So I said, we got to talk. So we had a scheduled 3 o'clock meeting at, you know, on City Avenue at our practice facility. And at 3 o'clock, I'm in my office. He's not there. So I leave. And, uh, and I'm getting in my car, and he comes driving up with one of his friends and said, where are you going, coach? I said, well, you weren't there at 3 o'clock. My time's as valuable as yours. I'm leaving. He said, don't go, I'll leave. And all he wanted to talk to me about was I'm not going to trade him. Um, he didn't want to hear anything else, a conversation, not about the season or anything, saying, coach, I want to stay with you. I don't want to be traded. Please don't allow them to trade me. And I said, Alan, we're not going to trade you. You're going to be part of this team, but there's certain things you just got to change. And that's what I said, you know, at the press conference. Um, and he said, oh, thank you, Coach. Thank you. Well, there were three hours before the press conference. And I don't know what the hell he did those three hours, but that wasn't a <laughs> Alan Iverson that was, you know, dealing with all his faculties at that time. And all he wanted to talk about was Coach told me, that he's not going to be traded. And the first question out of somebody's mouth was, well, you know, coach thinks you got to be more responsible to be about practice. And lo and behold, 26 times he said, practice. I'm not <laughs> talking about a game. You're talking about practice. And he went on and on. And every, every year, the anniversary of that speech, I get more calls for more podcasts and interviews <laughs> than you can imagine. But that was the essence of it, you know, that whole press conference. You know, Ray, what, what strikes me when we do these interviews is just how great these personalities are, right? Larry Brown and Pat Croce and Jeremy Roenick and all the people that we've hosted in the 100 episodes of Tell Us Your Story. And it makes me think the guys used to be so much more interesting than they are now. <laughs> now, is it just because we're living in the now that I feel that way? Or is it that we had so many more compelling personalities a couple of years ago. Uh, I think that's true. I, oh, I, which I, is neither or. Which one? Were no, there I think more I, interesting guys back no, then? I, no, I, I think they're I think they're more interesting back then. You know, I, I really do. I think that's I think that's kind of what this tells me anyway. Uh, yeah, these were all great. Uh, I, I just I, again, I'm sort of uh, I we had I got such a kick out of Jim Gardner 
sitting down with us. Like, he hadn't spoken to anybody after he had announced that he was retiring, stepping down to Channel 6. We were the first people he came to mm-hmm. uh, to sit down and talk about his, his great career here in Philadelphia. Uh, and it was a terrific interview. It, it really was. Uh, but his story about interviewing a sweat-drenched and grumpy George W. Bush and breaking the ice by talking to him about Sammy Sosa is just so great. I mean, uh, that that is that'll be a highlight in any show. Yeah. Well, I got to tell you, this has really been a highlight for me doing this today uh, and the, the three best ofs we've done. And really the chance for you and I to do 100 of these Tell Us Your Story interviews. We're going to keep them going because we really like them. We're going to have to keep trying to find interesting personalities, right? We're going to be able to do that? I think so. All right. Well, there you go. Anyway, he's Ray Dinger. I'm Glenn Mack now. We really do appreciate you listening and being part of the show. This episode was sponsored by Meridian Bank, one of the area's best business banks. Learn why at meridianbanker.com slash WIP. For Ray, I'm Glenn on 94WIP. On 94WIP. All right. Well, what do you take out of that, Ray? <laughs> uh, just great enjoyment. I, I mean, I've... Been, I've I got to give you credit because you're the guy that came up with the original idea of Tell Us Your Story going on two years ago um, of doing these long form interviews. And um, I mean, I never thought would get to triple figures. Yeah, I never I never thought would. Well, I never thought would have 100 of them in the bank, but we do. Uh, but the last three but the last three shows here with the best ofs. I mean, it just and we, listen, we could have done more. I mean, there are a lot. There's a lot of other stuff from other interviews with some great stories and some great anecdotes. I mean, we we finally had to cut it off at one point, but they sure were great fun. Yeah, and it was all born out of necessity. I, people probably know the story at this point, but um, the pandemic hit two years ago. It was March 14th, I feel like, is when it shut down. Two years ago, it was. It was right at the time of the Maxwell Club dinner. I mean, that's how okay. I always remember it, and that's all, that's always in March. Okay, so it, it was right then. And obviously sports closes, but we're still doing shows and we have to think like, okay, what are we going to do, right? We, we certainly can't talk about the pandemic three hours a day for however long it lasts. Right. And of course, I'm thinking, oh, this is going to last three or four weeks. That's all it's going to be. I think probably a lot of people at the time thought we'll be coming out of this quickly. And, you know, well, everybody you, thought we'd have baseball by July the 4th. Remember those conversations? Oh, sure. we'll, be, yeah, we'll be back on the field for sure. Yeah, I do remember that. Um, but when that happened, we thought, OK, well, we better come up with something. And to us, it was kind of an opportunity. Look, we, we started with our friends. We started with Merrill. <laughs> we did. <laughs> yeah, we, we did. And we then Dick Vermeil was an early one and uh, Mark Zumoff. And we, we kind of went to people we Scott, knew. Uh, uh, Scott Fransky. Scott, Scott Fransky. I think he was the first one we did. I think he might have been. And um, people we knew would be good storytellers that we could get an hour out of who wouldn't mind uh, when we would call them. Normally, you know, for radio interview, it's like, hey, we want to talk to you. You got 10 minutes. And right. this is like, hey, we want to talk to you. You got an hour. Right. And, escort, and, and Scott Fransky said, yeah, what else am I doing right now? I'm, I'm at home with my kids. Sure. Right. right. And so we started doing them thinking that we would just do it till the end of the pandemic. Well, or we, actually, we thought we'd do it till sports came back. Correct. And uh, we didn't think it would be as long as it was. But even when sports came back, we kind of realized, like, you know what? This is really – it's fun for us. Our audience seems to like it. Let's stick with it as long as we can, and here we are. I heard it all the time. I mean, I was in the middle of doing uh, finished business. My book had just come out. So I was doing a lot of book signings. And, you know, there'd be people in line buying books and talking to them, obviously, when you're signing. Uh, and so many of them said, oh, God, I love Tell Us Your Story, and you are going to keep it going, right? I mean, you are going to keep this thing going. And I, that's what I told you. I said, Glenn, you know, I didn't really intend it, but I think we're going to have to keep this thing going. And it's, it's, really, it's really, really been good. I mean, the interviews have been – we've covered a lot of ground. We've talked to a lot of people, and some of the stories that people have told have been surprising. Uh, we've, we've heard a lot of stuff that we didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we try to research all of these guys before we sit down and talk to them, but all of them have had some surprises in there. Uh, there's been funny stuff. There's been poignant stuff. Uh, but most of all, it just, I think the one thing that comes out is the humanity of these people and what they live with, you know, their own excitement, their own fears, their own triumphs, their own disappointments is, is the humanity of sports is really what kind of draws us to the games anyway. Um, I just remember one of the early ones we did was Jay Wright, you know, talking about winning the NCAA championship. And, you know, it wasn't just the moment of Chris Jenkins hitting the shot 
It was everything that led up to it. It was the practices. It was the time at the hotels. It was the bus rides. It was the excitement, the ride that we were on. You know, it's not just the moment, it's the journey. And we heard that so often. It was great. It was really, really great. And I've really enjoyed doing this. And I think the last couple episodes here where we'll put the best of it together really, really underscores that. Uh, so coming up, let me think. Next uh, weekend is uh, former Flyer Captain Dave Poulin. Yes. Uh, coming up after that, we're going to talk to Fran Dunphy during the NCAA tournament, which right. will be good. Legendary Philadelphia basketball figure. And uh, Todd Harriman's. Mm-hmm. Ten years with the Eagles as an offensive lineman and some really good teams. So that's, yep. that's kind of the look ahead. All right, Ray, as uh, we wrap up and I see John Johnson in the house, uh, let's talk about, well, first of all, you got anything else going on today? Uh, today, uh, probably just it's a pretty day outside, so I'm probably just going to uh, put the collar on the bulldog and take a nice slow walk through Rittenhouse Square. That's a pretty good deal for you. That's good. And, of course, Sixers at New York against the Knicks. I mean, every expectation, right, that they're going to look as good as the uh, Sixers are going to look as good as they did on Friday? I would certainly think so. Yeah, I think I think that uh, we've got a good chance for that. All right. Um, I guess that's it. We'll uh, we'll get out of here, give John Johnson a full show. Uh, Dan Wilson, Bruce Dan, anything real quickly we forgot to talk about that we've got to sneak in here? Not off the top of my head. Okay, there you go. I, I know I didn't give any time to prep for that, but we always appreciate Dan's work. You and I will be back. Uh, next Saturday, you stopping in this week with the midday guys? What's your schedule for the week? Yeah, I think I'll be. I think I'm going to be in with them on uh, on Wednesday. Yep, uh, my usual twelve forty-five to one forty-five. Sit in with the boys. All right, and that'll be as the NFL Combine is underway. Combine and will we can, be underway, and there'll hear, be a lot of nonsense. Hear you know, about all the quarterbacks with small hands. All the quarterbacks with small hands. <laughs> Right. Okay. Good. I, I, I love I love those discussions. I I, I miss going to the combine because I used to love having not arguments but discussions with the scouts about what's really important and how you how and how you judge a player. Well, I, I guess that's one way. Or that, or misjudge. Or mis. I was going to say that's one way that they incorrectly judge a player. Anyway, you have a great afternoon. Stay tuned. John Johnson in the house. He'll be taking you through the afternoon. Thanks for listening, everybody. Ray Dinger, Glenn Mack, now on ninety four WIP. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.